What's it like when one of your friends on death goes led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from an inmate the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Hey, Matt. You're almost constantly assuming that someone's about to try and kill you. You're surrounded by 700 plus murderers. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm your host, Matt Ralston. Today we'll discuss the case of one Marcelino Ramos, who died prematurely in his cell on San Quentin Prison's death row after being afraid to go to sleep because, as the story goes, something was coming for him. My co-host, William Nogueira, knew Marcelino Ramos quite well. They were serving time together on death row. Nogueira is still on death row. Marcelino Ramos was born in 1958 in San Antonio, Texas. Him and his brother were orphaned as infants, left on the hot Texas sidewalk, left there crying. They were adopted. Their parents soon died, and the brothers raised themselves. After his arrest for murder, a psychologist characterized Ramos as, quote, borderline retarded, his words, not mine, with an IQ of 75, meaning he could not appreciate the music of Elvis Costello. Ramos is fat, shifty, awkward, sweaty, got picked on a lot, looked like Mr. Potato Head. While growing up in Texas, he began associating with a kid named Ruben, who was known to be violent and had a manipulative relationship with dull, suggestible Ramos, who was a homosexual. Ramos's brother moved to California and begged his younger brother to join him get away from Ruben, and the plans were set, but at the last minute, Ruben made the Greyhound trip from San Antonio to Orange County, along with Ramos. They started hanging out regularly, drinking, doing that. To make ends meet, Ramos got the only job he could, and began working at Taco Bell as a janitor. June 2nd, 1979. 20-year-old Catherine Parrott was finishing up her shift at a Santa Ana Taco Bell along with her co-worker Kevin Pickrell, 19 years old. Just before 1 a.m., Ruben entered the restaurant, placed a large food order, 12 tacos, 10 burritos. This was some type of diversion. As Catherine and Kevin were making the food, Ramos entered. He knew the two employees as he had been a janitor there for some time. He went into the back to check his work schedule, then returned, this time holding a rifle under his coat. Now his friend Reuben hopped over the counter, and the two corralled the workers into a walk-in refrigerator. He told them to kneel down and face the wall. He demanded the keys to the safe. He told the two to remove their hats, he placed a rag in Catherine's mouth so she couldn't scream as much. And then he said the last words Catherine would ever hear. Say your prayer. Kevin felt a thud on the back of his head. His ears were ringing. He got up. His co-worker was dead. But Kevin had been lucky. Apparently Ramos missed. Grazed him with the bullet. Shot part of his ear off. The guys got away with a thousand bucks. Ramos, the janitor, is easily identified as the culprit by Kevin. Only six hours after Ruben had placed that order at the Taco Bell, detectives found their way to the apartment he shared with Ramos, where they saw him, all five foot two of him, walking down the street and arrested him. Less than two months before the robbery, Ramos had written a letter to his brother. I know that you have never liked me as a brother, but I was always proud to have a brother like you. After you've finished reading this letter, you could ask God to forgive me for what I did in my life. 
I always wanted to make you proud of me, though everything I did came out wrong. Marcelino Ramos was 31 years old when he committed this crime. He lived on death row for 27 years, but he would not die by gas chamber or lethal injection. What was the last thing Marcelino Ramos saw? If we're to believe a prison guard who witnesses death, it may have been the face of that 20-year-old girl named Catherine. As he saw her, he was crying, just like he was as a young baby, abandoned on the sun-baked streets of San Antonio. He cried as he entered this world, thanks to his prostitute mother. And now he lay on death row, dreaming about what he'd done. And again, he cried, whimpering lightly, as that baby had cried on the sidewalk. Somehow he knew he would, like all of us, serve an inevitable sentence of death. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Cool. Uh, yeah, I'm still a little creeped out from the story that we did last week, but... Uh, I guess we have another one that's a bit similar, and that's Marcelino Ramos, right? Yeah, Marcelino Ramos. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's another one of the stories we can uh, pay attention for. Yeah, so much like uh, the previous story, you had interacted with this guy. Is it fair to say you knew him fairly well? I know you weren't friends with him, but you were you're pretty familiar with him, right? Yeah, it's really hard to be friends with somebody condemned to die or a guy who may have an agenda. Um, the guy that we spoke about last week, which was... Um, uh, a guy that I, I actually knew him, but I didn't know him as well as I knew Marcelino Ramos. And as I said, it's very difficult to really get to know somebody. Um, but in this case, Timothy Russell, who was last week's um, story, I knew him very well. He was on my yard. But Marcelino Ramos, I knew since 1985 um, when he returned uh, to the county jail from death row because he was actually um, sent to death row. He was one of the first. He was the original 12 that were sent to death row back in 1979 and 1980. And by 1985, he had returned to the county jail because the Supreme Court of California had overturned his death sentence and given him a new penalty phase. And in a death penalty trial, you have two phases. The guilt phase is which are they find you guilty or not. Once they find you guilty, if they find the special circumstances to be true, then you go through another phase called the guilt phase, where you'll get either life without the possibility of parole or death. Marcelino Ramos had returned to the county jail in 1985 because they'd overturned that, and I got to know him pretty well because he lived basically right next door to me. Yeah, so you were in jail awaiting trial, and he had already committed this crime and um, and and been sent to to jail and that's when you are then sent back and that's when you first encountered him and then you guys were eventually on death row together right exactly uh, we were like as i mentioned in orange county together and while he was there he was in the hole or the ad seg where i was housed at and everybody who returns from death row is immediately put in ad segregation which is the hole because of how dangerous you are and that's where i got to know him um, pretty well. I mean, Ramos is, is, is not what you would consider, you know, one of these guys with tattoos, that's a killing machine. He's a pretty quiet guy, very awkward, didn't fit in. Um, you know, I, from my observations, he was struggling with um, being gay, a few things that 
outwardly wasn't out. He wasn't telling anybody. You know, you can imagine in the 80s in prison, that's not something you don't want to tell anybody. But I could see what he was struggling with. As I said before, I'm a very good judge of character. I'm, I'm very observant. So I got to know him at least in a way from an observational point of view. I spoke to him on a number of occasions, and we interacted. So, yeah, I knew him pretty well. And um, so it was it's easy to sit down and write his story because um, I knew him so well. Do you think his being uh, homosexual when that was not uh, an okay and acceptable thing, did that influence his demeanor? And you, you said he was almost kind of withdrawn or he's very quiet and this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded kind of awkward yeah absolutely i think that you know if you're unsure of yourself and in a prison setting where everybody's usually watching you they're looking for weaknesses they're looking for anything um a person who is struggling with his sexuality doesn't want to say much He's awkward. He doesn't want to say much because people would read into it. Or if maybe he said something that didn't strike the right chord with people, people immediately would, you know, I mean, it's like a pack of wolves, really. If you say the wrong thing and they may think that you may be gay or something, you're going to have problems, serious problems. And he, and he did. Uh, he, if we get into his crime, he was a janitor at Taco Bell and he... Uh, went to rob the Taco Bell, and he ended up murdering a young woman, and uh, another man, young man he shot survived. And that was yeah. a special uh, circumstance that led to him being uh, sentenced to death, right? The special circumstance was robbery and attempted murder. It's a felony in the commission of a, of a murder, um, and it was on June the 2nd, 1979, um, as you said, he was a Taco Bell employee. He was a janitor there. Um, it was a little bit close to a little before 1 a.m., and his crime partner, Ruben Gatan, he entered Taco Bell, and he placed a huge order. And as the teenagers were preparing the meal, Ramos comes in, and they knew who he was, so they allowed him to go in the back. And that's when things got sideways immediately. He... Um, waited a few moments and came out and he had a rifle pointed at both of the employees and you know them being kids and they understanding that he he was a, a kind of a, a guy they knew they they started laughing and they soon found out that he he was not joking he was actually there to rob the place um then he took the kids into the walk-in refrigerator and he, and he he began to interrogate them about the the safe and the keys and and I mean, at this point, the kids are pretty scared. Um, and um, he really, without any uh, remorse, and I spoke to him about this. I asked him specifically about, about this. He, you know, he told the kids uh, to get on their knees, and they have a, an accurate description of what happened because one of the kids survived. Um, you know, he, he told the kids, point blank, say your prayers. And uh, he shot the young lady in the back of the head, killing her. And he shot the young man in the back of the head, also hoping to kill the boy. And uh, once they robbed the place, him and his, his uh, crime partner, Ruben Gatan, left. And the boy, the young man, uh, sensing that they were gone, stood up and called the police department. He was very, very fortunate. He took basically two bullets to the back of the head, and they didn't do anything to him. They, they missed the targets. And the next morning, of course, they arrested both Ramos and Gatan. And after a pretty short trial, by January 1980, which was six months after the robbery, Marcelino Ramos was sentenced to death, becoming one of the first dozen that were sent to death row after the death penalty in California was reinstated. And um, that was um, that's where the story basically starts. Yeah, I wonder, cause I know he was a young man, but if the way this crime was commissioned could shed any light onto what type of guy he was, because the plan was idiotic. Like, why would you rob a place where they already know you as opposed to a totally separate Taco Bell? Um, also, 
I don't know the the whole story behind saying say your prayers, but that was very sensational. It was like he he it was an execution and I don't know where he got that or why he said that. To me it sounds like something from a Clint Eastwood movie and then when you look at the investigation they went to his apartment and they found a diagram of the Taco Bell and it had been ripped up into pieces but it was still obvious what it was and then I start thinking why would you need to diagram that Taco Bell you work there every day uh it's a it's a small facility just nothing about it made a lot of sense to me um so he was not a criminal mastermind I take it no I had a he had a below average intelligence and um, you could tell that immediately from talking to him. Very, he was slow. Um, but to answer your question, uh, um, the diagram was based, I, I, in my opinion, it's for, it was for his crime partner's um, uh, sake. So he understands where to stand, what to do, how to do it. It's not very um, unheard of to see or hear of criminals planning something out and drawing a diagram of what they're going to do and where they should stand, where the people are going to be. That doesn't surprise me as much as the plan itself. So there's two sizes, of course. You could say, well, he was an idiot for doing it to a place he knew and they would know who he was. But then I would argue, well, that he intended to kill him from the very beginning. His intention was to go there, kill the kids, take the money, and be gone with it. That's the explanation, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, when I think of, uh, you're, you're probably right. I had just been assuming that it was just a botched robbery, that a robbery and a, the killing of these two people didn't intend to happen. But obviously, that's probably wrong. He could have just robbed the place and not killed anyone. Well, if he, if he robbed the place and not killed anybody, there would have been witnesses, and they would have told the cops exactly who he was. So my position, or at least what I believe to be true, is he went there with every intention to kill the two kids and then rob the place. Which would back up the... Right, and that would back up why he would say, say your prayers, make them kneel down, and shoot them in the yep. in the back of the head. The, the boy or young man survived despite being shot in the back of the head. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded his uh, ear was shot off or something. Yeah, because he missed. And obviously, I mean, that, I, mean I, I don't know how... I've never shot anybody, so I don't know exactly how he'd miss, but it, it kind of goes to the same state of mind as in my position that he went there with the intentions to, to kill these people. He knew where they were. He didn't care anything he did. I mean, I'm not here trying to be, you know, you know, a lightning rod of, of justice or anything, but I'm just calling it how I see it. We're here to talk about things in a, in a candid way, and obviously Ramos is dead, so it doesn't make a difference in the appeal or anything else, but if you were to ask me, I would I would stake money on it that he went with every intention to kill both teenagers and take the money. That's exactly what he attempted to do, except he failed. He left one alive, who obviously immediately testified and brought him to death row. How do fellow prisoners, we all know the cliches, and, and it's true that they do not treat child molesters, rapists, people like that well. What about people that go and, and shoot these two young people for no good reason? How are they treated? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a little conundrum in a way because he was not a rapist, he was not a child molester, and, and if you do have rape or child molestation, you're usually a walking duck. They're going to kill you. Or they're going to try to kill you as many as you can, as many times as they can. With Ramos, it's a little bit different. Although, he did kill what is, in my opinion, kids. Um, he was kind of given sort of a pass. Like I said, he was slow. He was a follower. A lot of the, the, the gangs kind of gave him a pass because he was a gopher. You know, go get some coffee for us, and he would do it. Go, go make a sandwich, and he would do it. So he really wasn't um, thought of as a threat or anything or a guy that people would think, oh, we've got, we got to do this guy in because he killed a bunch of little kids. They were 
teenagers. I believe they may have been 18 or 19, so technically they were adults. So you didn't have that kind of problem with him. I guess we'll get into his demeanor when he finally got to death row, uh, how he handled it. We will find out that eventually he became withdrawn and had some serious issues. And uh, that's that's what we're going to talk about. Absolutely. Like you said, he got on okay because he didn't cause any trouble. He, he yeah, he kissed kissed some ass, I guess, a little bit. So he didn't have any real problems. But what was his demeanor? Was he remorseful about what he had done, or do you know anything about that? Yeah, you know, I, I as I said before, and, and we've talked about this, and I was thinking about it before I called back. Um, you know, the whole purpose of, of of the Death Row Diaries is to get an insight of these killers' minds and um, the people that I knew personally to get my take on how they responded to certain situations. Um, and, and, and in that thought pattern, you know, when it came to Ramos, um, I don't think he. I don't think he fully understood the complete consequences of what he did. Yeah, he knew he killed, and he knew it was wrong, and all those things. And But it's difficult to talk to him, to have spoken to him, for five minutes and not walk away thinking, this guy is freaking retarded. I mean, and that's, I know it's politically incorrect to say that, but that's the only way I could describe it. The guy was slow. I mean, if you told him something, yeah, he'd respond. He understood. I mean, if you told him what color is that, he'd tell you he was blue. But there was an awkward slowness to him. His brain wasn't really firing on all cylinders. Was it wrong? Yeah, he committed the crime. He got the time for it, and I, I concur with what happened. But, yeah, he was, you know, he'd go outside, stay to himself, kind of, you know, mixed in with some of the guys that were Hispanic, uh, didn't really work out. He was kind of overweight, chubby guy, uh, you know, just really awkward. He was in the wrong place. He just, you know, he, he committed a crime, so he had to be in prison. But he's not what you would think an atypical prisoner should look like, if you know what I'm talking about. So eventually he started displaying some very odd behavior. How long had he been on the row when when his issues started happening? Well, I think they, they started happening pretty, you know, after the time he got here. It, it happened pretty quickly. I wasn't here between 80 and 85 when he first came here. But after he returned, he got, the, he got a second death sentence and he came back to the row. I got a chance to see him on the row. Um, and yeah, he, he just had, he had some issues and I, and I think, like I say, he's very awkward, very, uh, you know, he had this sexuality that I, he didn't know how to deal with. I don't think he knew exactly what he was dealing with. And I asked him about it. I, you know, I, I pulled him over. I said, you know, are you okay? I, you know, I see you drifting off. What's going on? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. But, um, you know, I, then time passed and this issue happened where, you know, he was um, he was found dead, and it, I really didn't think about him much until I began interviewing what was more than a hundred people on the road, including guards and convicts, about all these paranormal activities that have been going on here, uh, supernatural uh, occurrences, hauntings, possession. When I started really opening that can of worms is where his story came back, and then I had to do a double take and come back and reassess what I saw occurring with him, and that's really where the the book starts, where it comes to his um, behavior and his experience with the paranormal activity. Yeah, so he was found dead in a very strange position, let's just say. Um, was it a guard that you spoke to that told you this story or was it just something that everyone was kind of aware of? Well, everybody knew that he died. The circumstances by which he died were not really, 
they didn't come to light. There was rumors. That's the best thing I can, that's the best way I can describe it, rumors. And there's a lot of rumors on the road of how a guy died, that they heard things. Some people always see certain things, but they can't really put their finger on it. But as I said, when I began interviewing for this book, this was one of the first stories that came to light, and it was from a, a, a gun rail officer, uh, actually by a guy named Morris. He's a former military sniper. Uh, actually, the, he was considered the most dangerous of all the gunners. He showed up at my, my cell front um, late at night. It was about 1 a.m., and he just said, hey, I, I hear that you're, you're interviewing people about um, what we've seen. And I have a story I think you may be interested in. And that's how it started. He began to tell me the story. And um, to begin the story, I did change his name, meaning the officer. Um, but the things I described about him are absolutely true. He's a former um, military sniper. Uh, his kills are all in the Middle East. Uh, one of the strangest things he showed me was a, a chain with a, a live round on it. He showed it to me. The, the, the round was covered in, sh in little scratches of how many kills he has. Um, and then he just told me, look, I, gotta, I have a story for you. And it deals with Marcelino Ramos. And that's where this particular story starts. And he began telling me about uh, his position, which is as a gunner. He, he, he ran the lower gun rail, which is parallel to the third tier. East Block has three, uh, six different tiers, five actually. The third one is where they keep property. So the gun rail is about maybe 25 feet away from the tier front or the cell front. So the gunner can walk basically right in front of your cell. And that's a position he held first watch, which is from 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. And uh, what he saw me, what he saw, and what he described is a pretty scary and gripping story. Um, so let me start there. That you know, he, by being a gun rail officer, you basically your job is to shadow the night watchman and make sure that nothing's happening in the tears. And that could be anything from escapes to guys making weapons, anything like that. These guys report it. They they watch. They keep. Uh, watch, and they're, they're there for the security institution. On a one particular night, he was sitting at the very end of the gun rail. There's a toilet area there where there's kind of blankets that cover the person. He was just sitting there, and he was watching the tears when he said that he felt just really scared. All of a sudden, there's this, like, you know, surrounding chill factor. He's, he could see his own breath. He felt fearful. But he didn't know what he was looking at. And he looked down the tree, he saw nothing. Um, he, he didn't know what was going on, but he knew something was there. He described that he looked at the tears with the eyes of a sniper, meaning he, he looked looking for things that normal eyes of normal people can't see, and he saw nothing. But then, as he sat there, he leaned his rifle against a pipe, which is a long... Um, water pipe that's galvanized polished steel and when he set his rifle there he saw movement and he looked at the pipe he looked at, then he looked at the tear and he saw nothing looked back at the pipe he sees movement looks at the tear nothing's there so he's seeing he he's seeing in this pipe that's um kind of metallic He's seeing a reflection. He's seeing something moving in the pipe, but when he looks um, in in the actual direction, he doesn't see anything. It's exactly right. But what he does see is his breath coming. It's that cold, and this is summertime, which is unheard of. And he sees the lights on the tear begin to dim as as if something is coming down the tier, but the lights are dimming to mark its progress. And he sees it again in the reflection. As he sits there, he notices what he described is a shadow stop in front of a cell front and then, like vapor, go into the cell. And no, this is before Ramos. This is something he saw a 
few months prior to that. And he, did, he didn't know what it was, but he heard what he described, a man crying, sobbing. And he was overwhelmed with fear. And that went on for a few moments until the crying or, or sobbing died to a whimper. And then again, looking at the pipe, he sees a shadow emerge from the cell and go down the chair again, and the lights are dimming. He looks at the pier, he sees nothing. He looks at the reflection of the pipe, he sees something. I mean, this scares the hell out of me. He's sitting in front of me, telling me the story. I'm like, well, what did you feel? He said, I couldn't move. When he finally could move, he walked all the way to the front of the unit where all the officers stay in the front, and he sat there where all the lights were at, and he did not move until the next morning. And then he went home. So you can imagine what kind of, I mean, this is, <laughs> pretty interesting, right? I mean, so the shadow was kind of was that pronounced? I'm kind of wondering. He he obviously saw some movement, dancing on this kind of a polished. Did I, did I read in your in your manuscript that the guards had kind of polished that so almost to act as a mirror so they could see around the corner or something? No the the pipe was already it's kind of like galvanized steel, but it's or it's already naturally polished so you can see blurry but you can see a reflection of the tear on this pipe because it runs along the the entire length of the building so if you look at this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded you could see somebody standing on a tear but you couldn't make out features you couldn't see who the person was you'd know somebody's there because of the reflection so just a figure just like how a, a person would look but it was moving yeah, and that's exactly what he saw. And so then it was he, cold, and there was a, a sound of a man crying. And, and was that someone, was that a prisoner, or was that an unexplained entity? He said it was the prisoner that, that he believes at that point, and as this story continues, you'll know that it was the prisoner where this shadow thing stepped into the cell, and the inmate in that cell was crying. Okay, so this guard who's killed untold numbers of people and probably isn't afraid that much, is he's so scared that he basically can't move the rest of the night. Yeah, and I asked him about that, and he said, listen, I, I have no problem with facing a man, but I've been around death enough to know when death is around, and that thing was death. And he said, it's evil because of how he felt. He said he felt like a child and he wanted to start crying the same way that he, that that inmate was crying. He felt so overwhelmed with a terrifying grip of fear that he was just stuck to one spot. So it gets light. He leaves it. He said six in the morning. Yeah, he gets relieved at six in the morning. He gets out of here as fast as he can. But he said as he drove away, the fear would go away. It, it dissipated in a way. And when he got home, it was no longer really, he, he imagined that he, the whole thing was his imagination. He, he felt that maybe he, he it just, it's something that he maybe imagined. He didn't know what it was, but he did one thing. He went into his service locker that was in his garage. He dug around and he found a mirror that he used in the field in the Middle East, and he put it in the pocket of his jumpsuit. He wanted to see clearly what it was that he was seeing, because obviously the water pipe wasn't polished enough to see detail. Um, so I guess we'll have to go on from there, because I have to call back. But the story gets better and better. It's just, it, it's shocking to me to have this, you know, military, I mean, for lack of a better word, uh, monster telling me a story and he's showing me how scared he is of what he's telling me well this is like nothing he's, nothing he's ever dealt with before it's a totally different animal right exactly something you can't shoot you can't stop because it's obviously something of uh, supernatural uh, um, you know whatever you want to call it All right, so he 
gets this little mirror. I'm assuming it's something he may put in like his breast pocket or something, right? Just a little. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. He was prepared. I mean, he told me that I was ready. He wanted to see what this was. He wanted to know he was losing his mind. So he brings this to work. And he does so for three months. And he even went as far as, you know, allowing superstitions to enter his mind. Like, during the full moon, is it going to come back then? And he does all this stuff, and nothing. Nothing happens. And then, about three months into this, in early 2007, he's once again in the back of the unit. He's washing his hands in a small sink. And the hairs on the back of his neck stand up and the temperature drops. You know, he's, his heart is pounding in his chest. He knows something's going on. Uh, his mouth is dry, uh, and he reaches into his breast pocket, and he pulls the little mirror out, and he gets ready. Um, he starts looking down a tear, scanning each tear carefully, and he sees nothing, but he understands like, how far this mirror will allow him to look. Each tear is 54 cells, which is about 100 yards. Nevertheless, he's, he's there. He can see the whole tear. And, um, you know, suddenly he sees movement and he realizes um, here comes again that shadow. And it's coming down the tier, the third tier, towards him. He's looking at it with the mirror and now he sees what it is. It's a long, tall, elongated shadow. And as it comes down a tear, it draws light to it, or darkness to it. it. The lights are dimming as it comes towards him. And he is looking at this thing clear as day. It's about 60 feet from him. And he notices that it has really no face, no limbs. The only way he can describe it is a shadow. You know, he's sitting there, there's cold sweat going down the back, and... You know, he's trying to decide what to do because he's almost frozen in the spot that he's where he's at. And just as before, it stops right in front of the cell. It's there for maybe three seconds, and suddenly, like vapor, it goes into the cell. At this point, he's, I mean, frozen. The same thing is happening again. And, again, here's the sounds of somebody sobbing. And it's a man sobbing. You can tell it's a man. And it turns into a really like a whine. And uh, he decides to walk down the chair to see what's going on. He hears the sound. He gets his legs to move. And he comes in line with that cell. And he gets the mirror and he turns it towards the cell and what he sees makes him nearly just drop his rifle and run. What he sees is the shadow, it's on top of the inmate in the cell. And the guy's asleep, sobbing, and he has his hands up as if trying to ward off whatever it is. And he seems to be dreaming, but this shadow, for lack of, lack of a better term, has its face close, or what looks like its face, close to the inmate who is Marshall and Ronalds. His face is close to the, and it seems to be breathing in deeply, in and out, in and, as the guy is sobbing. He sees, sees this, and he is freaked out. He drops the mirror to the side, and he walks to the front of the unit, and he just sits down and doesn't talk to anybody. He doesn't look anywhere. He looks straight ahead. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Go to his superior. Hey, Lieutenant, by the way, I saw somebody feeding on an inmate. It looked like a shadow to me. I mean, it just, you, you can't do that at San Quentin. It, it, it just, that doesn't happen. So, so when, when he, when, when this, when this, figure or the shadow was on top of him and and he was crying was it clear if he was awake or asleep or if he was cognizant of what was going on he seems to think that Ramos was asleep and then that was later confirmed with 
when the story develops more, um, the guy was asleep. And that entity, that shadow, that thing, was seems to be feeding on him during a dream or a nightmare. Something to that effect. And this is a long a long slender kind of figure which is interesting because the other guard in uh, the previous story with with the inmate named Tim Russell who the guard found a handprint on his shoulder and it it was like a very large kind of elongated hand right absolutely yeah you're, you're absolutely correct all right so he doesn't know who to tell about this he doesn't he doesn't know how to react, so what does he do? Well, he, he sits in the front of the unit. When his shift is over, he leaves. But in his mind, he knows that he can see this thing because he's a killer as well. And that seems to be the key here. The things these guys are experiencing is because they're also killers. The guards, the inmates, the people who see these things on death row at St. Quentin, all of them, were killers. So he says he went to sleep that night when he, when he arrived home the following morning and he, you know, he, he doesn't he usually closes all his drapes, he turns all the lights and he goes to sleep. This time he sleeps with all the lights on and he's really scared. He's not, um, he doesn't um, feel that he's safe. Um, he doesn't know who to talk to. He keeps it to himself. But he returns the following day to his job. And uh, before he enters the, his position as a gunner officer, he speaks to the tier officer that works the third tier in the parking lot. And he finds out a little bit about that guy in 108. He finds out his name is Marcelino Ramos. He knows he's a convicted murderer out of Orange County. They robbed him a, a fast food place. Um, and then he, you know, he goes back to his post. As the night progresses, he sees Ramos in a conversation with a guy on the fifth tier, which is two tiers above Ramos's tier. And the conversation has to do with something he's referring to as go fast, which in prison, I, in, I think in most circles, is considered methamphetamines. So in somehow, in some frame of his mind, Ramos knows he can't go to sleep. So he's seeking out this drug to stay awake. And Morris sees a line come off the tier, the fifth tier, go in front of Ramos' cell. He fishes it in. He pulls a small packet off of it. And he trades CDs and other um, items with the supposed drug dealer on the fifth tier. And he is using this drug to stay awake. He knows subconsciously he can't go to sleep. For whatever reason, I didn't speak to Ramos during his time. I don't know. But, uh, look, it's obvious he's trying to stay awake. He knows something's coming for him, or he understands that at some level that he's in danger. And um, Morris walks down here and, and looks into the cell, and he finds Ramos' cell ablaze in lights. His fan is on, his TV's on, the radio's on, and it's just a jumble of noise, and Ramos is in his cell. And when he looks at him, he can see the effects of the drug. He's, you know, he's hyper, he's alert, and it's pretty obvious that some way, somehow, this guy knows that something's hunting him. Yeah, so he's afraid to to sleep, and I would imagine he, when he wakes up, if he is asleep, when he's crying... You know, he knows something's wrong. I, we've all probably woken up crying and you don't feel right. Is there a way that one could sleep in the day in on death row um, and maybe um, stay awake all night? I wonder if he thought of that. Sure. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that since you mentioned it, but still, I mean, I'm not sure that his mind was there yet. I don't know what kind of fear he was he was feeling or what he was going through, but yeah, he could have done that, but he, well, he, for some reason he didn't, he was just trying to stay awake. He didn't want to and, sleep uh, at all. So he's just he didn't want, desperate. Yeah. And now he's doing meth and he's, 
So what happens? How does this behavior escalate from there? Well, as the the nights come, obviously the shadow doesn't come back. Morris says he didn't see it. But over the next few nights, he sees, he looks into Ramos' cell and he notices TV disappears, then his radio disappears, and the rest of his appliances, his fan are gone. And obviously he's trading his stuff for this drug to keep him awake. He's, he's, he's basically, the only lifeline that he has are the items in his cell. He's fighting against a death far worse and what the jury was going to give him, and he knows it somehow. In some part of his brain, he understands this. So, um, you know, Morris sees this going on, and over the next few nights, you know, the, the drug begins to wear out. And the next time he walks on the tier, which is the following day, he finds Ramos in bed. He's awake, but he's in bed. And he does his rounds, leaves the perimeter of that particular cell, comes back an hour later and he finds Ramos asleep in bed. His lights are on, but he's asleep. And he knew, Morris knew, that now that he was asleep, that shadow would return. He just knew it. And he was right. Around 2 a.m., while he was in his little cubbyhole, if you want to call it, his, his crow's nest to watch the tears, the temperature drops. And he reached into his pocket, he grabs the mirror again, and he begins to scan the tears. And he finds the shadow not in front of him, but below him. Where, where that crow's nest is, right below him is a chapel area that different people in death row use for different religions. And coming up the stairs, you know, he's got his mirror pointed downward, he sees the shadow moving towards him, up, up the stairwell as if it was a person using stairs. And he sees the, 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 the shadow reach the third tier. It's within 20 feet of him. And it seems, he says, to pause as it is sensed that he was there. And again, he repeats, the reason he could see it, the reason the thing could see him is because he was also a killer. And as it steps onto the landing and goes down the tier, a big sigh of relief. You know, Morris thought it was coming for him. And he sees the dim lights again as he walks each cell. And it gets to Ramos' cell. And it enters again. And he can really hear the sobs now. It's it's intense sobbing. Uh, it sounds like a childlike um, sob. And it's just pathetic. I mean, the way he hears it and the way he feels... He said he, he's agonizing what to do. And um, the cries, the sobs finally die down to a pathetic whimper. And the shadow emerges from his cell. And that's the most horrible part of this. As the shadow, the shadow emerges, Morris says that it was more solid. It was still a shadow, but now it had more of a human appearance. It walked like a man. It actually took steps. And that just terrified him. He was almost panicking hyperventilating when he sees this thing now walking towards him. Well, well, we'll come back when, um, as this thing is walking towards uh, Morris, and it stops. So we'll be back. Hey, so it it seems like uh, the most common interpretation here would be that it had been feeding on him in some way, and it it now appeared more full, almost like a parasite. Is that is that kind of how you thought about it? Yeah, it's a pretty good analysis of exactly what happened. Yeah. I mean, when he told me that, it's one of the things I thought about as I wrote this story, that it was a parasite, it, or it is a parasite, that it was feeding on this guy, and it, as it fed, like a tick, it, it, it fattened itself on, on blood, but it was, it was feeding on this guy's fear, this guy, whatever was in Ramos's conscience, or the things that he did wrong. He had been up for so long that he he would just crash really hard and be almost defenseless. He would be out really, really hard, right? 
Yeah, completely. And whatever this thing does by making you maybe relive those moments, maybe he was reliving when he killed those two kids. You know, this is me speculating, but it seems to be that it was feeding on something and it had something, or almost had something it wanted. It was probably those those deeds that he did. Mm-hmm. So now the um, guard is even more, fri- maybe the most frightened he's been of this thing yet. And so what happens now? So the shadow, you know, descends or comes down the tears, the top lights are turning, dimming, and it gets right in front of him and it stops. And it looks, and he's looking at it through his mirror and this shadow raises what looks like its head and stares the senseless gaze, the senseless gaze at Morris. And he describes that a terror so overwhelming descended upon him that he was crying. He was also began to cry right then and there. And he was terrified. Uh, he knew it was there and knew that he was there. And it knew so because he was a killer. And finally, I guess when it, he felt that it accomplished its goal of terrifying him, it turned his interest and began to move down the stairwell and it, it just disappeared. It just disappeared. There was nothing there. The the, the fear, the temperature, everything diminished. Everything went back to normal. And Morris found his legs. He stood up. He was he wanted to know what happened to Ramos or what was going on because obviously the thing looked like it could walk like a man. So he makes his way down the tier and he gets in front of Ramos' cell and Ramos is nowhere to be seen. And he's just like, what? He's not looking through his mirror because he's not looking for the shadow. He's looking for Ramos and he doesn't see him. He's about to start blowing his whistle because some, I mean, if the guy's gone, what the hell? And then he sees movement. And when he looks closer, he notices that there's a form underneath his bunk. And you have to turn all the lights on in your cell, and the lights are high, so under your bunk is a completely darkened area. Ramos was underneath his bunk in a fetal position, and what he describes shaking. And he knew with him, he realized he didn't have to blow his whistle. And he was going to tell him, I blew whistle to the guys on his bunk. And he just, um, you know, he, he, he made sure he was there. And he walked, he kept walking towards the front of the unit. And um, that was it. He did the next following days were his RDOs, which are regular days off. And while he's at home, he began to research. Now he really was interested in knowing what happened. And he began to research San Quentin. And although he he found, you know, death, torture, violence, executions, murder, and everything else he could find, he found nothing about paranormal activity until he came upon, and you and I have talked about this, Matt, Amos Lunt, the first executioner in 1891 at San Quentin Prison, and the paranormal activity that he uh, experienced, and he mentions a shadow as well that he found and um, yeah I mean pretty intense stuff right yeah so obviously he leaves the prison and he does the research as I was speaking and um, he discovers Abel's Lux the first execution at San Quentin that he also was he talks about a shadow and he was you know telling his other guards that he was experiencing um, paranormal activities that they had come back for him from the dead and they were being assisted by uh, an inmate. And long story short, about Amos Luntz, he was taken out of the prison and sent to the fatal asylum where he was found dead later. Well, uh, you know, Morris reads this and, you know, he begins to research and find there's a large number of men on death row are found dead in their cells over the years of apparent, you know, natural causes, suicides, and they were, they were fine the day before, the couple of days before. So he comes off his RDOs, his regular days off, and as he's coming in from the San Rafael Bridge, he sees the prison, and he says he's really on high alert. He's really 
afraid for Ramos. He's afraid for to even go there. He doesn't want to experience this anymore. And his worst nightmare comes true. As he mounts these stairs to enter East Block, and he arrives in the gun rail, he sees in front of cell 108 red tape. And red tape means crime scene. So he gets to the tear in the front. He asks the desk area, what's going on with 108? And he's told that Ramos has found the bump that morning in the sitting position, non-responsive, and he's dead. So you can imagine the impact that that has on Morris. He immediately is shocked. He's scared. He didn't imagine all this. It's not in his head. And he's really uh, doesn't know what to do. So he does what any man does. He buries it in his head and says, it never happened. Until, of course, um, a couple weeks later, uh, the autopsy for Ramos from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation Office of Public and Employee Communications was that Marshall died on January 22, 2007, of natural causes. That was the official statement from the department, and Morris knows that's not to be true. Natural, so, natural causes. So he was. Can we go back to how he was found? How it was reported? He was found. He was sitting on his bed. Yeah, he was in a sitting position in his bed, sitting there. Um. And you know what, he, it was never really clear was it the bed or the floor, but he was in a sitting position, and he was found just non-responsive dead. No apparent, uh, you know, cause, there was no strangulation, there was no, uh, he didn't overdose, nothing like that. He just died. And, um, oh, God, you know what, I'm, I'm trying to think back, I mean, Ramos was in his 40s. Yeah, he was in his 40s. So, yeah, it's pretty young, uh, but, you know, what, what Morris told me is, like, he believes that some inmates, instead of letting that thing feed off of them, they try and kill themselves. Unfortunately for Ramos, he believes that that thing killed him. And what evidence and, uh, does he does he have of, of, of that? Was it something he, he saw in the cell, or what leads him to think that? or just his experiences in general? Well, his experience in general, what he saw. And as I said, I spoke to him um, for several hours as he was giving this um, this statement, and he was dead serious. There's, there's nothing wrong with Morris. He's not a, a guy that just scratched the surface and later on he realized the guy's nuts. This guy is a... Well, according to... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. According to the, to the United States Department of Defense, and he, he is classified as a highly classified war weapon. And if the United States Army and the, the, the Department of Defense trusted this guy with classified information, you could pretty much put his, uh, put his credibility up there with some of the best. This guy wasn't nuts. This guy witnessed this, and he told the story as he saw it. And honestly, I believe him because one of the things that he told me that left me, I mean, I still don't know how to respond to it other than to say what it was that he told me, was that the reason he actually came to talk to me was not only because he heard I was writing this book and he wanted to get his story in there to let people know what was happening in this place, that this place is evil, but that during his walks at night, they, on other occasions, he saw the shadow again. One of the times that he saw it, according to Morris, that it was standing in front of my cell. He said it never went in, but that thing was watching you. And those are his exact words. That thing was watching you. Well, it just sent a bunch of chills up on my arm, my arms, the hairs on my arms standing up, and uh, not good. I mean, I, 
I have not been, that I know, attacked by anything, but I believe him. And this is not the only time that witnesses have talked about and told me about their experience when it came to a shadow they saw moving. So, you know, it, it tends to give credibility that when you have a, several people talking about the same thing that they saw, and it's really close to what Morris told me, yeah, it's, it's a little, you know, it shakes you up a little bit. Yeah, it can be anything that you just die with no nobody causing your death. So yeah, I mean that's that's a pretty bland way of putting something. You die of natural causes. Okay, well, I didn't see the autopsy, but um, because of that story, I tend to uh, think that maybe something else had to do with it. So it, does it look in every cell? Is does it? I mean, this might seem a little overly clinical, but has it attacked in in a certain cell more often or been seen, uh, you know, outside of certain cells? Or, you know, is there any kind of pattern? The only pattern that I could see, and there really is no true pattern, is that it's only been seen on death row. Um, I've heard no stories of it being seen outside of death row. Now, there have been other instances where people in other blocks have seen ghosts walking in, in paranormal activity. But this particular entity, this shadow, has only been seen in East Block on the tiers. And I can confirm that it, there is another story in the book where this shadow returns and it takes another life. There are several instances in the 106 people I interviewed that this shadow pops up around 11 or 12 times. There are little bits and pieces of what somebody saw, what someone heard. A guy looked out the tear with this mirror and he saw it, but nothing good enough to make or give the audience a complete story. There are just too many bits and pieces. But there is a complete story in the manuscript, in the book, uh, Penitentiary Horror, um, two paranormal stories about America's most haunted prison and the evil stalking the men on death row that gives life to that story with a different inmate that also ends up dead. Yeah, did Ramos ever mention this to any fellow inmates? Or I guess he was just kind of a quiet, just schlubby guy. I, I don't know if he... It's not the type of thing you want to tell to inmates either, is it? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't think so, but in the same token, I don't know if he actually knew what was, on a, on a certain level, he knew something was coming for him. He was afraid, obviously, but I don't know if he understood what was going on because he's asleep while this is happening. He probably thought it was a nightmare. Maybe he was afraid of going to sleep because he would have a nightmare. I, I don't actually know that part, and from the witness account of Morris, he also can't get in his head, so he would be guessing, and I would be speculating, but it seems to be logical that he was afraid of going to sleep because maybe of what he experienced during nightmares. Maybe this thing was making him experience those things at a certain level. That way he, he was afraid, and it could feed off of him. It's got to be psychologically just the most hellish form of torture and hellish form of existence because he's afraid to go to sleep he thinks i'm assuming he thinks there's something coming for him for whatever reason he knows that he should not go to sleep and yet he knows that at some point he will go to sleep he can't outrun this whatever it is yeah he can't outrun it and i think at some level he probably believes that i mean that it's coming for him because of what he did I mean, killing two ch two kids is is no uh, is it, it, something extremely serious. It's uh, they, he took the life of two kids, and, um, and that had to weigh on him. And I mean, unless he's a complete sociopath, um, 
you know, I think that all of us as human beings at some level, I think, I'm hoping there's a piece of humanity left in all of us and that at some point his conscience continued to bother him. I mean, you, you, you kill two kids that have to haunt you, right? That has to come back. You have to think about that moment when you, when you, you decide to do this. I would imagine. And I mean, this is beyond speculation, but I'm wondering, cause you know, you know how to handle yourself. You're a pretty assured person. Even with Tim Russell, when we talked about him, he was kind of downtrodden, a little bit broken in spirit. It, I'm wondering if there's a pattern or consistency if this thing kind of goes after the, the weak or the wounded. Maybe it's a bit of vulnerability consents, maybe. Yeah, it's, that's a good point. It's almost impossible to to really know that. But, I mean, this place, as I've said before, there's, there's an evil presence here. There is a... Um, we have 60 seconds remaining. This place is twisted. There's something inherently wrong with this place. And if the witness accounts are, are accurate, then this thing that's haunting people and stalking them knows to go after.